Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 94 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at all the other electric vehicles that aren't cars. Before we start, I wanted to ask my patrons how they enjoyed the patron-only episode of the podcast I released last week. Was it interesting? Useful? Informative? Let me know, please. Also, can I remind everybody that the end-of-season episode will, as usual, be a roundtable discussion. So let me know who you think should be on as a guest. In the past, we've had Dan Caesar from Fully Charged, George Brompton from My Energy, Jill Noel from EVA England, uh, Jonathan Porterfield from Ecocars.net, Heather Kennedy from EVA Scotland, and Leanne Roberts from the EV Nexus and Sussex EVs, amongst others. Who would you like to hear from this time? You may recall me chatting in a recent episode with Melanie Shufflebottom from ZapMap. I said at the time that we discussed something which is very exciting but embargoed, and I couldn't tell you anything about it. Well, the news was released... And it is a brand new version of the ZapMap app. Try saying that three times quickly. I'll let Melanie tell you more about it. We're really pleased to have released the latest version of ZapMap, ZapMap 7, which is available now on iOS and soon to be released on Android devices. This release includes updates to the existing three features, particularly in the routing and in filters. And also we've introduced two new subscription plans, ZapMap Plus and ZapMap Premium. The updates to the existing features include adding a new routing mode called AutoRoute. With this, you can add your start and destination, your EV model, Presco, and we will calculate a route for you. If you want a more customised option, you can change the driver options or you can use one of the existing routing modes. ZapMap Premium is all about helping to helping drivers to sort of plan their journeys quicker. Uh, we've added many new ways to locate suitable charge points and really personalise your experience, such as filtering by new charge points, seeing all the charge points added in the last 30 days, filtering by multiple locations so you're able to identify those larger charging hubs, or filtering by user rating so you can see which of the charge locations have been highly rated by other ZapMap users. You're also able to save more route plans, more filters, add more vehicles and view what three word addresses. ZapMap Premium is around helping EV drivers drive smarter. So in addition to the ZapMap Plus enhanced features, ZapMap Premium is connected to your car via Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, which means that you can locate suitable charge points, view your live, live charge data and, and follow route plans from within the car, looking at ZapMap on your in-car display. Also, ZapMap Premium gives you unlimited ability to save routes, filters and EV models. ZapMap Plus and ZapMap Premium are both available either on a monthly basis or on an annual plan. On the annual plan, ZapMap Plus is available for £2.49 a month and ZapMap Premium £3.99 a month. We hope that users in our community agree that the introduction of subscription plans with an increasing number of advanced features will continue to provide value to them as customers and support our sustainable business where we're really passionate about continuing our journey together to simplify EV ownership. So there you have it, a new version of the app, much improved filtering and a two-level subscription plan to include Apple CarPlay and Android Auto as part of that. Sign me up! Our main topic of discussion today is electric vehicles that aren't actually cars. We've already done an episode on rideables, episode 67, so if you want to know about Eastgate's one-wheels and e-scooters, that's the place to go. 
Also, we have an episode on electric boats, episode 82, where we talked with Stuart Wilkinson from Vita Yachts about their development of electric cruises and the associated charging network for boats. Links for both of these episodes are in the show notes. But I'm talking about the other sort of electric vehicles that exist in the world today that are there merely as a result of the move to electrifying drivetrains. So I'm not talking about milk floats, golf buggies and forklift trucks. But would it surprise you to know that there are the following electric vehicles in the world today? Electric tractors, diggers, trains, ferries, planes, yachts, oil tankers, dustbin wagons, ambulances, amongst others. And that's pretty amazing, really. But the big question is, which modes of transport will benefit from electrification? This seems like a no-brainer. Of course, cars, dustbin wagons, ambulances, etc. will all benefit from electrification. In fact, the more things we can get off fossil fuels, the better. For example, the police force in the UK recently announced they've taken delivery of a Tesla Model 3 as a test vehicle to see how well it works in multiple high-speed pursuits. It's the same price as a typical BMW 330D that they'd use, and it costs a lot less to run, so we'll keep an eye out on that. But one thing that's becoming apparent with respect to electrification is that just because you can electrify something doesn't mean you should electrify it. But what and how is always something that will cause discussion and contention. For many, many years, for example, people thought that electrifying something like a lorry or a truck wouldn't work because the batteries wouldn't have the range and nobody wants to sit charging for hours at a time if they do have a huge battery. Over time, however, the thinking around that has changed somewhat. Auke Hoekstra, who is a Dutch researcher from Eindhoven University, found that in his research, battery-powered trucks can corner the market on most of the 40-ton heavy semi-trucking and outcompete diesel at the same time. His research uncovered, for example, exactly how freight companies around the port of Rotterdam drive around. Turns out 80-90% to 90% of trucks drive about 500-750 kilometres a day and come home to their depot at night. With an efficiency of about 1.3 kilowatt hours per kilometre, a battery of one megawatt hour would suffice for this. Sure, that's a big battery, but if you take out the fuel tank of a diesel and swap the big heavy engine and gearbox out for a motor and batteries, you can put in a six ton battery, lose three tons by redesigning the motors to fit between the wheels, and with the two ton additional weight allowance the EU gives electric vehicles, your net cargo loss is just one ton. This is important because 40-ton trucks cause the most carbon dioxide emissions of all freight transport types. The cost savings are also huge. If we take diesel at £1.32 a litre and electricity at 30 pence a kilowatt hour, uh, that's £420 for diesel and only £195 for electricity if we assume it takes 318 litres of diesel for a 560km trip versus 650kWh at 1.3kWh per kilometre for the same distance. Obviously, the Tesla Semi is hoping to compete in this space, but other manufacturers, such as Volvo, Mercedes, DAF and MAN, are already putting electric trucks into service. But that's not to say there isn't a case for something like hydrogen to be in the mix. We said before in our hydrogen episode that the logistics, the efficiency and the cost make hydrogen uncompetitive for personal transport. But for longer distance travel with much larger loads, the logistics of batteries versus hydrogen tanks and refuelling can make sense for some use cases. Of course, the rider for this is that the hydrogen has to be green hydrogen created via renewable sources, rather than blue hydrogen or grey hydrogen from fossil fuels. It will still suffer from the problem of higher cost than battery because you use approximately three times the energy to create a kilowatt hour equivalent of hydrogen than a kilowatt hour of electricity. 
What about planes, though? Can we electrify them? Well, there are electric planes at the moment. A company in New Zealand called Electric Air is running flights in a Pipistrel Alpha electric aircraft. It's a single-engine twin-seat plane giving leisure flights and pilot training around Rangiora and Christchurch in New Zealand. In Canada, Harbour Air have converted a number of Beaver seaplanes to full electric and intend to run them on routes around Vancouver, Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. Maximum flight time is about an hour. This obviously is only the tip of the iceberg. A company called Eviation is developing a nine-seater aircraft called the Alice. It's intended to travel the best part of 600 miles on a single charge and hold two crew and nine passengers. In terms of emissions, 81% of aviation emissions come from passenger flights and the rest are from freight. And of that 81%, one-third come from flights of 1,400 kilometres or fewer. But for flights of less than 500 kilometres, the carbon intensity per revenue passenger kilometre was almost twice the average for longer-haul flights. This means reducing the carbon on short-haul flights has a better CO2 bang for the buck than longer-haul flights, which seems counterintuitive, but it's true. And that's why the Alice has the potential to be such a game-changer for short-haul aviation. The fact that it looks like a futuristic corporate jet doesn't hurt either. I can see this being used in places such as... The London to Paris routes, London to Amsterdam, Paris to Zurich, London Frankfurt, London Brussels, Madrid Lisbon and similar short haul flights around Europe. In the US I can see this taking over a lot of the shuttle flights between places such as New York and Boston, New York and Washington, Dallas and Houston, San Francisco and LA. Elsewhere this could run the heavily trafficked short routes such as Brisbane to Sydney, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tokyo, Kobe, Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City and Singapore to Kuala Lumpur. For longer distances, the prospect of full electric aviation seems quite remote at the moment. There are numerous projects underway testing alternate fuel sources. One I'm particularly interested in is a system which uses biofuel and batteries in tandem for the takeoff, where lots of power is needed to get planes up to their cruising height. And then the hybrid system is shut down and the plane runs on biofuel for the cruise, where the energy requirements are a lot smaller. Airline operator EasyJet is partnering with a company called Wright Electric, on an 800-mile range, 180-seat regional jet that will run on electricity. The electricity can come from any fuel source, and this is an option where potentially hydrogen might be used. At the moment, though, aviation is still a very dirty way to travel, and it accounts for 2% of global carbon dioxide emissions. There's plenty of opportunity there. Let's head out onto the water and see what's there. One of the big problems with the larger ships, especially the tankers and cruise ships, is that they burn bunker fuel, or fuel oil as it's properly known, which is the dirtiest form of petroleum product there is. It is, basically, the stuff left at the bottom of the barrel after all the good stuff has been removed. In fact, the only thing thicker and dirtier than fuel oil that can be produced from a gallon of oil is bitumen, and that's used to tar road surfaces with. So electrifying ships seems like a good idea. Obviously, the big issue with ships is that they tend to go long distances. Look at some of the cruise liners, such as the Queen Mary 2 or similar. They travel across the Atlantic Ocean and other such long-haul routes. Incidentally, a cruise ship like the old QE2 could travel 125 feet on a gallon of fuel at a cruise speed of 20 knots, or 50 feet per gallon of fuel at a cruise speed of 28.5 knots. It was quite a fast ship. That's almost 106 gallons per mile. Electrifying large boats would seem to be almost impossible. The weight of batteries and the volume of space would make them virtually unusable. Ironically though, the propellers on ships like the Queen Mary 2 are actually powered by electricity. 
The difference being that there are four 16-cylinder diesel engines and two general electric gas turbines producing that electricity. The gas turbines are derivatives of the aircraft jet engines used to power Airbus A300 and Boeing 747 jumbo jets. So that's going to be loud, dirty and use a lot of fuel. It's hardly surprising that according to the carbon offset company Climate Care, passenger ships release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere per passenger mile than long-haul flights. So electrifying ships would seem to be something that should be prioritised, right? Well, luckily it's happening. There are, at the moment, a number of passenger and vehicle ships which have been electrified and are running in regular service in various parts of the world. In Norway, there is the MV Ampere, which plies the route between Lavik and Opedal, a 20-minute 5.7km journey. The 10-tonne lithium-ion batteries it uses have an overall output of 1,000 kilowatt hours. They can be recharged in 10 minutes between crossings from high-capacity batteries at each port. The Aditya in India is a solar-powered boat which has 150 square feet of panels on the roof feeding into a 50 kilowatt hour battery. It carries 79 passengers and three crew and runs, at the moment, between Vicom and Thavanakadavu in the Indian state of Kerala. Aditya costs only about 79 US dollars per month to run, compared to 2,867 US dollars for the diesel power ship it replaced. Consequently, the local government is looking at replacing all 48 of its diesel ferries with electric ones. Back in Norway, the largest electric ferry is the MF Basto Electric, which runs Norway's busiest ferry route, some 10.5 kilometres, between Hurten and Moss across the Oslo Fjord. It can carry either 200 cars or 24 trucks as well as 600 passengers. It has a battery capacity of 4.3 megawatt hours and it should be able to do between 20 and 24 crossings per day. Charging will only be done on the Horton side but plans are to create a facility that allows charging on both ends of the route. Peak rate of charge is 9 megawatts but it won't be cranked any higher than 7.2 megawatts during routine charge. I mean we don't want to overdo things do we? What about bigger ships, I hear you ask? Well, there is a Japanese consortium which is putting together, ironically, an electric-powered oil tanker. The aim is to create a ship with a capacity of 500 tonnes using a 3.5 megawatt-hour battery that will carry fuel for other vehicles between ports. It's designed for usage in domestic situations around Japan and it's aimed at replacing the 3,000 domestic ships cruising the waters around that country. So... What about something that's partly a ship, partly a ferry, um, partly a plane? Just recently, news was released about a flying ferry. It looks, for all intents and purposes, like one of those old Catalina flying boats. But it's all electric, it has eight propellers, and it floats on a cushion of air just above the surface of the water. It rises like a hydrofoil, takes 150 passengers, and can cover Portsmouth to Cherbourg in about 40 minutes, which is six times as fast as the current ferries. The range is about 180 miles on a charge. At the moment it's still on drawing board, but with something like that we've got the ability to reduce shipping emissions and cut travel times across the channel. Shipping is 2.2% of global CO2 emissions. The downside to this piece of tech is that it would be passengers only and wouldn't carry vehicles. I mentioned electric bin wagons, or refuse trucks for our American friends, earlier on. The first of a fleet of five new electric refuse collection vehicles, the RCVs, arrived at the City of London Corporation in March of this year. The new 18-tonne and 26-tonne trucks can complete a full shift on one charge, 
Operator Violia has developed a smart charging system that compares data, including shift patterns, available generation and vehicle power requirements, and uses this in an algorithm that automatically determines which vehicles are charged when back in the depot. By using this system, the vehicles are, av are available when needed, local grid power availability is maintained, and future expansion of electric demands can be met as further decarbonisation measures are introduced. Electric trains have been around for quite a while. In fact, electrification of the tracks is something that has been in place since the late 19th century. Obviously, the technology has increased and improved. As of March 2020, 38% of the British rail system was electrified. That's 3,758 miles. This is set to expand as 25 kilovolt electrification comes to currently unelectrified lines, such as the Midlands Main Line and parts of the Northern Hub. The problem with this is that where the line isn't electrified, electric trains are limited on where they can run. However, friend of the podcast, Dr Ewan McTurk, released a video on his YouTube channel discussing a solution for how this can occur, link in the show notes, where he discusses things such as using supercapacitors super in diesel trains to bridge the gap between electrified sections of the track. Currently, trains such as the Virgin Rail Pendolino trains and the Class 91 electric trains are all fully electric and have been in operation for many years now. I mean, the Class 91 electric was built between 1988 and 1991, over 30 years ago. And we've talked so far about how there are things that have been electrified currently, and we've touched on some of the items that are in development, but what else is coming up? Well, once green hydrogen becomes easier to electrolyze using renewable energy, the possibility for hydrogen fuel cells increase on all sorts of means of transportation. I talked earlier about the EasyJet plane that will run on electricity generated from any number of sources. Hydrogen is the best and the greenest for that. But at its basic level, anything that moves can be electrified. If it has an internal combustion engine or a jet turbine inside it, the engine can be removed and replaced with an electrified motor. Whether the electricity comes from a large battery or from a fuel cell is immaterial at the moment. And this brings in the possibility of electrifying the larger and larger ships. Can you imagine a ship which uses electrolyzed seawater to create hydrogen on board and the desalinated seawater could then be used on board as water for the plumbing system or the onboard swimming pool, for example? We've mentioned battery power trains which bridge the gaps between non-electrified sections of the rail system. These can be extended in other countries where the rail system has non-electrified gaps. More and more ferries, pleasure craft, river taxis and work boats, tugs etc. could also be electrified. How about long-range trucks running on battery or hydrogen combinations? The Australian road trains, which can be 200 tonnes and anything up to 180 feet long, uh, are usually pulled by a single prime mover unit, and these units generally have large displacement diesel engines which provide the power to move the whole combination. We know that the right electric motors can provide just the same sort of grunt as a diesel engine, which is why electric cars such as the Tesla Model X can pull Boeing 787 Dreamliner planes. So the limiting factor here is the ability to power that motor for prolonged periods of time. With large enough batteries and some combination of fuel cell and hydrogen input, this is something that I can see happening in the medium term. So, in summary, not everything can be electrified, at least not with batteries, but whereas previously there was a school of thought that said cars should be hydrogen, or planes could never have batteries big enough to use for any length of time, these attitudes are changing. We now have electric trucks, electric planes, electric ferries, electric tankers and electric refuse trucks to add to the ever-expanding list of personal electric vehicles like bikes, scooters and skates, motorcars and vans which are popping up more and more across our street. 
And that's a good thing, right? It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. If you've ever been to some of the cities in the US, you'll know that they're designed for cars. But have you ever wondered why that is? Uh, One reason is that in order to accommodate so many cars, city councils and governments in the US have mandated minimum parking spot sizes and numbers for different types of building. The zoning laws are so onerous in some cities that a 1,000 square foot restaurant will need 3,000 square feet of parking to be legal. This puts huge parking areas between buildings, spreads out the buildings and means that walking between them becomes almost impossible, meaning you need to drive. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. It's estimated at the moment that there are eight parking spaces for every vehicle in the US. But it doesn't have to be like this. The article, link in the show notes, shows how we got to this situation, how it can be resolved and what we can do with a land that's freed up. In a podcast about renewables in electric vehicles, it would seem to make sense that we should be reducing the number of cars. If we cut down on the parking spaces and charge for the remaining space, this will increase available land for building houses and help cut down the total number of cars on the road. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also musingsev on Twitter. If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, his diet's not going too well. He's found himself addicted to the stuff he calls gloop. It comes from the popcorn he gets at the cinema. It is, basically, the stuff left at the bottom of the barrel after all the good stuff has been removed. Thanks as always for listening. Bye-bye now.